great absolute bookends of our lives, that no matter what circumstances that we go through, no matter what news we might receive, there is no condemnation and there is no separation. Therefore, if you know this chapter, you know the Bible, you know the gospel. One Bible scholar, Charles Erdman, put it this way. When it comes to this chapter, he says, If the epistle to the Romans rightly has been called the cathedral of Christian faith, then surely the eighth chapter may be regarded as its most sacred shrine or its high altar of worship, of praise, and of prayer. Here we stand in the full liberty of the children of God and enjoy a prospect of that glory of God which someday we are to share. So this is the cathedral. This is the the shrine, the high altar of Romans 8. And this morning we come to verse 28. And two verses that follow, which are not throwaway verses in and of themselves. And we know, we, or we all know, we all love, we all quote, and we all at one time or another have relied upon and will rely upon Romans 8.28. It's a powerfully encouraging verse, an encouraging promise from our God in the middle of hardship, at the moment of crisis. It's a sweet comfort that God is working and that he is bringing good from what seems so bad he's bringing joy from what feels so painful in our lives there was once a, an african king who had a close friend he'd grown up with throughout the years they were inseparable but the friend had a habit that became quite annoying he responded to every situation whether positive or negative by saying this is good This is good. When they went hunting, the king's friend always loaded and prepared the guns for the king, but on an expedition, apparently something went wrong, and when the king fired the rifle, it blew his thumb off. While bandaging his bloody hand, the friend of the king remarked as usual, it is good, it is good. To which the king replied, no, this is not good. He was angry and had the man sent to prison. A year later, the king was hunting in an area he should have stayed clear of, and a tribe of cannibals captured him and took him to their village. They tied him up to the stake and piled up wood. Just as they were ready to set fire, someone noticed that the king was missing a thumb. Superstition told them that they should not eat anyone that was less than whole, so untying him, they sent him on his way. As he returned home, he was reminded of the event that had taken his thumb, and he felt bad for the way that he had treated his friend. So he immediately went to the prison to speak to his friend, and he said, You were right. It was good that my thumb was blown off. He then recounted all that had happened to him, finishing with, I'm so sorry for sending you to jail. It was wrong of me to do this. To which the friend replied, No, this was good. This was good. To which the king was surprised and said, How can it be good that I sent you to prison for over a year? To which their friend replied, If I hadn't been in prison, I would have been with you. (laughs) Some of you will get that a little later on. But the verse that we come to today doesn't declare that everything that we face is good. That's not the declaration, not It's not all good, but it does say that there is a God who is working 
every event, all events, ultimately for the good of those who love him. You know, what if you knew, what if you really knew that everything that happened to you would eventually work for good in your life? Would it change the way you felt? Would it change the way you thought? Would it change the way you lived? And I'm here to say, I think it would dramatically change everything. That's the unstoppable power of Romans 8, 28, the ultimate promise in the Bible. All things work together for good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28 is all-powerful. It's all-inclusive. It's always available. It can touch any hurt that you have. It can redeem any problem. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just nice flowery words. This is a divine promise from our God. So let's turn to the word. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read verses 28 through 30 of Romans 8 together. So Romans 8, 28 through 30. You'll see it on the screen as well. And Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word. Oh God, speak. Speak to us, God. And Lord, regardless of what we're going through, regardless of what circumstances are piling up on us, help us to know, help us to believe that for those that love you, God, you're doing something. You are at work. May we see that today, God, you are at work for good. Lord, help us to leave here believing that even more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. So God, at work for our good. Listen, most of us desire to enjoy a comfortable, predictable, pleasurable life. Do, do you? I, if, if I could sign up for a life free from difficulty, pain, and suffering, I would say, where do I sign? Just give me the paper, I will sign up. And in many ways, to want to live a life free from pain and sorrow is kind of a God-honoring desire because prior to the fall, Prior to sin entering the world, there was no pain, there was no death, there was no sorrow, there was no sickness, there was none of it. But we have to be careful because here's what we do know. Terrible things do happen to those who love God. Those who love God do have to walk through terrible, difficult things. In fact, just think about the problems, the burdens, the heartaches, the disappointments in your life, even right now. Just think about those things. Is any one of those things beyond the reach of Romans 8.28? Let me just say from God's word, no, they are not. Not one. Can there possibly be a situation that isn't covered by that, that wonderful small word, A-L-L, all? And the answer is not one, for we know that every last detail of our lives for, now the qualification here, for those who love God. And we can go through the New Testament and say, well, who loves God? Well, according to Jesus, those who obey him. That's the picture. So for those who love God, it will work together for good. So today I want to unpack 
five truths. I know there's two more than normal. It will not cost you any more. It might keep you a little longer, but it will not cost you more. Five truths related to the God who is at work even this very moment for our good. I hope you believe that today, and I hope if you believe it, it'll tell your face that uh, throughout this time, and that maybe throughout this time you'll even smile a little bit because these are good truths to know. Amen? So the first truth is this, the certainty of God's work. The certainty of God's work. Verse 28 says this, those first three words, and we know. That's certainty, and we know. The words we know are not necessary for this promise. The verse makes perfect sense without them. Paul could have, without a doubt, just wrote, all things work together for good. And we would have been like, yes, yes, he does. But the Holy Spirit, who doesn't waste any words in the Bible, began the sentence not with an emphasis on what God is doing, but on, with an emphasis of what our attitude should be concerning what God is doing. So Romans 8, 28 begins with a statement of certainty. And we know we don't hope, we don't hypothesize, we don't hallucinate, we don't assume, we don't speculate, we don't fabricate, we don't toss and turn in anxiety. No, we simply know. We know. We know God. Therefore, we know His power. We understand something of His providence. We trust His provision. It's certain. It's for sure. It's fail safe. It's inevitable. It's God's guarantee for us, and it can never be otherwise. This is an attitude that we see all throughout Scripture. Did you know that the word know occurs over 1,000 times in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? And it seems to underscore this confidence that God has given to us. There's a ring of definiteness in Paul's language. Paul's not scratching his head here going, well, I think so, or I hope so, or maybe, just maybe. No, he says, and we know. This is what we know. Kenneth Weiss, a Greek scholar, translated verse 28 this way, and we know with absolute knowledge. We know with absolute knowledge. And please hear this this morning. Never abandon what you do know because of what you don't know. Let me say it again. Never abandon what you do know because of what you don't know. There are certain things that you don't know. There are certain situations that you're going through. You're like, how can good come from this? Things that you can't figure out. Things that you can't see. Why? But then there are other things that you do know. You know without a doubt. So during those times of difficulty, during those times of deep grief, during those times of wrestling gravitate and hold on to what you do know even when there's things that you don't know hold tight to what you do know even when things don't make sense even when you can't figure them out you can lay your head on the pillow of God's certainty because he is at work the certainty of God's work we know he is working we know he's working. That's the certainty of God's work. The second truth is this, the comprehensiveness of God's work. The comprehensiveness of God's work. So in verse 28, Paul continues, and we know that for those who love God, and I underline these two words, all things. There's comprehensiveness there. All 
things, no matter how optimistic you are. Please, please hear this. No matter how optimistic you are, some things in our lives just stink. Amen? There were just things in our lives that stink. Things like war, death, human trafficking, disease, many other things alike are awful. But our God is more powerful than all the forces of, of evil and all the rotten things that happen in our lives. He's more powerful. God took death in himself in order to redeem us from it. He reached down into the depths of our brokenness and began the restoration process of restoring your life and mine. Therefore, be very, very careful here. Paul does not say that all things work together, or, or Paul does not say that all things are good in and of themselves. So Paul isn't saying everything is, is good. That would be a, an absurd statement, right, for Paul just to go, everything's good. When we look at natural disasters, those aren't good. When we look at human tragedies, they're not good. Nor does the text say that God will keep us from all bad things. Listen, there's a false teaching in many faith circles that says if you come to God, God will give you health, wealth, and prosperity, and you'll never have any difficulties, you'll never have any pain, you'll never have any sorrows. Let me say this, don't buy it. Don't buy it. God had one son without sin, but he has never had a child without suffering. If you sign up, if you sign up for Christianity because you think God has promised you health, wealth, and prosperity, you have signed up for something that God has never promised you. But let me tell you what he has promised you, to walk with you every step of your life and to do something, to work it for good and for his glory. Again, terrible things happen to people who love God. Terrible things. Yet notice again, it does not say that some things work together for good. Now, we would probably believe that, some things. It also doesn't say that most things work together for good, nor does it say good things work together for good, nor does it say only prayed or prayed for things work together for good. It says all things. Let me just ask you a question this morning. What does all things mean? Let me say it again. What does all things mean? It means everything excluding nothing. I like that. It means everything. There's no qualifications. There's no limitations. There are no loopholes here. The point that Paul is making is that nothing is beyond the overruling, overriding scope of God's providential care in your life and my life. All things means all things. William Newell writes this, dark things, bright things, happy things, sad things, sweet things, bitter things, things of prosperity or times of prosperity, times of adversity, all things. All things. But don't misread the, the verse. The, the idea is not that all things just so happen to work out. The idea of this verse is behind all things there is a God who is working them all for good. This isn't random. This isn't happenstance. This isn't, is it just circumstances working out for us? There is a God who is at work. Therefore, all really does mean all. Amen. 
the comprehensiveness of God's work, which leads us to number three, the cohesiveness of God's work. The cohesiveness of God's work. So verse 28, again, and we know that for those who love God, all things, and here's the next two words for cohesiveness, work together. All things work together. Those two words, work together, are literally one verse in the Greek, and they mean the interaction and cooperation of two or more things. So the picture is, get this, that God controls the mixture of all things so that it becomes the right combination. Here's an example. We're coming up on watermelon season. And in my humble but accurate opinion, there is nothing better on watermelon than salt. I mean, there's nothing better. If you disagree, it's okay. You have the right to be wrong. It, it won't be the first time, probably won't be the last time. But there is nothing better than salt on watermelon. We call it salt. We call it sodium chloride. But do you know that sodium in its purest elemental form and chlorine in its purest elemental form will kill you? Both of those in their pure elemental form will kill you. However, in the right combination, sodium chloride becomes beneficial. It could kill you in one form, yet in another form it takes something that's already delicious and it makes it even more delicious. That is the beauty. And there are certain things in life that on their own or in themselves, they're evil, they're horrible, they're bad, they're terrible. But in God's chemistry lab, he takes them together and he mixes them just right. And he gives them back to us. And they're actually healing and helpful and good. So Paul can say, we know that all things work together. That's God's chemistry here. But let me just say, tell you, it matters how we see things. It matters your perspective in life. I, wanna, I want us to real quick compare two worldviews. One is from the Old Testament, this patriarch whose name is Jacob. The other is from the New Testament, this apostle named Paul. Now, Jacob and Paul had similar experiences. Bad things happened in both of their lives. Now, we know the story of Jacob. Jacob's son was kidnapped, Joseph. He thought his son was dead. There was a famine going around. In the midst of it, his other sons were hateful and deceitful. He had a lot of bad things happen to him. The apostle Paul was an apostle who also had a lot of bad things. If you want to see what Paul went through, read 2 Corinthians 11. I believe right at verse 23 around there, you'll see the things that Paul lists, the things that happened in his life, bad things. So Jacob, when the bad things happened to him, in Genesis 42 verse 36, Jacob says this, All things are against me. All things are against me. Yet Paul says, in the midst of bad things, all things are working together for good. In fact, later on, and we're going to see next week, Paul doesn't just say all things are against me. He says, if God is for me, who can be against me? Brothers and sisters, what is your, what is your outlook? What are the way you, do you sit around and go, everything's against me, everyone's against me, it's all about me, it's all, or do we say, there's a God who is for me, and he's working it all for my good. Amen. Do we believe that? I pray that we do. You know, most of us have heard the story of, of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador 
around the, the mid-1950s, I believe. He was one of a group of five missionaries who planned and prayed and strategized and had, to, had a heart to reach this tribe down in Ecuador. Unfortunately, and I say that only from a human perspective, these five men were all killed. They were all murdered as they sought to make contact with the Aka tribe. What then happened, so the, the news was pretty significant, and for the news that was reporting it, their loss seemed like a tragedy. That's how it was reported in America. It was a tragedy. These men did that. It looked like a total waste of human life. That's because most people were interpreting it in light of, not in light of eternity like Paul did, all for good, but only in light of the temporary, like Jacob. It's all bad. However... In God's lab, there was a purpose. You see, each one of those tribes people, each one of them eventually came to know Jesus Christ. The gospel was planted in this culture, and to this day, the gospel is still thriving in this culture. And get this, the man who actually killed Jim Elliot, that put the spear in him, became a believer and is now in heaven. So I want you to think with me here. Just picture this scene. In heaven right now, Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries are around the throne of God with the man who killed him, looking back at the events, probably saying, it all worked out for good. Do you agree? It all works out for good. Good, the cohesiveness of God's work. This is what God is doing. Then it leads us to number four, the culmination of God's work. The culmination, what it's all leading to. And Paul writes these words in verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. Here's the culmination, for good. And then Paul goes on, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's just consider for a moment those two words, for good. Notice, Paul doesn't say that all things work together for our comfort, because we know we have all worked, walked through things that are quite uncomfortable. It doesn't say all things work together for our ease. It doesn't say all things work together for our prosperity. It doesn't say all things work together for our health. Yet it does say that God is working everything towards a supreme good. Hear this as God defines it. And God gets to define good in your life and my life. We don't get to define it. He does. Last week I quoted from Joni Erickson Tata's booklet, Hope the best of things. And I, as I told you, Joni Erickson Tata, after a diving accident as a teenager, has been confined to a wheelchair for the last over 50 years as a quadriplegic. She was asked the question, why? Why does God allow suffering? And I want you to hear her answer. She says this, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Let me say it again. God allows what he hates hates to accomplish what he loves we can have confidence that God never allows pain without purpose he never allows Satan 
or circumstance or any ill-intending person to afflict us unless he uses that affliction for our good. And please hear this this morning. I want you to hear this. God will not waste your pain. He will not waste your pain. He will cause it to work together for your good. And hear this. And he will cause it to conform you into the image of his son. Did you hear that? God has a goal. Conforming you into the image of his son. That's the point. We're predestined. God has chosen from the beginning to conform those who are his into the image of his son. That we would become more like Jesus. Meaning that God will take us through difficulty. He'll take us through trials. He'll take us through tragedies. He'll take us through the fire in order to make us more like his son. Not one amen for that because I know we don't like doing it. But brothers and sisters, either, either God's plan is good or your plan is good. But let me tell you, your plan will send you to hell. Amen. And God's plan will put you in heaven in the image of his son. I'll take God's plan. Amen. I will take his plan. I've always loved the illustration of a simple bar of steel. A bar of steel worth $5. If you make it into horseshoes, it's now worth $12. If you take that $5 bar of steel and make it into needles. So hypodermic needles or sewing needles, it's now worth $3,500. But when you make it into balance springs for fine watches, that $5 bar of steel is now worth $300,000. What in the world makes a $5 bar of steel worth $300,000? Let me tell you, what increases the value? Heat, beating, twisting, more heat, more beating, more twisting, and the more it goes through these contortions, hear this, the more valuable it becomes. God's purpose in all things is we will walk through it, and as we walk through it, he will make us more like his son. That is God's goal. All things are designed to shape, to melt, to sculpt, to frame, to cast us into that master design. Through our struggles, through our difficulties, God is pouring us into the mold of his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, and please believe this and hear this, there will come a time when you see all the painful chapters, all the heartaches, all the tears, all the disabilities, the disadvantagements, the disappointments, even those seasons of pain and sorrow and loss and disillusionment and doubt and failure. And you will see that all of those things were used by God for one purpose, to mold you into the image of Jesus. And when you get that to that place, you will look back and you will say, it was all for good. It was all for good. Every bit of it was for good. This is the culmination of God's work, which leads us, lastly, to the continuation of God's work. So now we get to the wide panorama of God's work. We get to the big picture Again, verse 29 says this, as you see on the screen, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Again, the active agent in all of this is God. God governs it. He, he guards it. He initiates this whole 
process. And listen, Paul doesn't bring up these, next, these two verses here to get us into a theological argument. Paul doesn't bring up these two verses so we can sit around and argue about Calvinism and Arminianism and all these other isms. Paul brings this up to encourage believers, to encourage us that God's at work and what God starts, hear this, he will finish. What God starts, he will finish. And so in so doing, Paul takes us from foreknowledge all the way to glorification. He takes us through five golden links in the chain of God's sovereign work in us and for us. You can see it in verse 29. He foreknew. He predestined. Then verse 30. He called. He justified. He glorified. Those five conditions take you all the way from eternity past all the way to eternity future. Get this. They all appear in past tense, even though one of them hasn't happened yet. So follow with me here. Paul says, whom God Foreknew. He knew in advance. He predestined us. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He called us. And praise be to God, you and I responded. We responded to that call. He justified us. We talked about justification. He declared us not guilty, righteous in his presence because of our faith in Christ. And then it says this, he also glorified he didn't say he will glorify he said glorified but guess what i'm looking at us this morning and you guys are beautiful but you're not glorified you're not there yet you've got a little ways to go you're not there yet it hasn't happened yet but here's the beautiful thing paul is so convinced and so certain of God's promises that he uses the word glorification in past tense because he knows if God says it, he will do it, and you can treat it as if it's already happened. That's the beauty of what we have, brothers and sisters. We can treat it like it's already done because according to God, it's done. It is done. One theologian Put it this way, and we'll have this on the screen. Thomas Schreiner said this, God's unstoppable purpose in calling believers to salvation cannot be frustrated. And thus he employs all things to bring about the plan he had from the beginning in the lives of believers. God's plan can't be frustrated. God is doing something. What does this all look like? What does this whole picture of God working it together for good look like? The best illustration I found was from author Philip Yancey. And just hear what he writes. He says, in high school, I took pride in my ability to, to play chess. I joined the chess club and during lunch could be found sitting at a table with other nerds poring over books with titles like classic King Pawn openings. I studied techniques, won most of my matches, and then put the game aside for almost 20 years. Then... In Chicago, 20 years later, I met a truly fine chess player who had been perfecting his skills long since high school. When we played a few matches, I learned what it's like to play against a master. Any classic offense or offense that I tried, he countered with a classic defense. If I turned to more risky, unorthodox techniques, he incorporated my bold forays into winning strategies. Although I had complete freedom to make any move I wished, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mattered very much. 
His superior skill guaranteed that my purposes inevitably ended up serving his own. Then he says this, perhaps God engages our universe, his own creation, in much the same way. He grants us freedom to rebel against its original design, but even as we do, or as we do so, we end up ironically serving his eventual goal of restoration. If I accept that blueprint, a huge step of faith, I confess, it transforms how I view both good and bad things that happen. Good things such as health, talent, and money, I can present to God as offerings to serve his purpose. And bad things too, disability, poverty, family dysfunction, failures, and the like, can be redeemed as the very instruments that drive me to God. Brothers and sisters, if you are going through good today and your life is good, give that to God. Honor God, praise God, worship God. And if you are walking through difficulty that you can't explain, that you don't understand, let that draw you to the one who has promised to work it for your good. Do that. And he will do what he has promised always. Always. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call the musicians forward. And I pray today, I pray that you have been encouraged. I pray that you have once again seen the beauty of the God that we serve, of his power to take what is not good, what is terrible in our lives, and work it for his good, for our good, his good, for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, your word says to thank you in all circumstances, Lord. So we thank you for the good. We thank you for the bad. Lord, we take the good that you have poured upon us, and Lord, we, God, we praise you. We declare, God, thank you. And Lord, we want to use it for your service, for your glory, for your honor. But Lord, we also thank you for the bad. Because the bad, Lord, it draws us to you. It makes us dependent upon you. And in so doing, Lord, there's good there. Because through those things, God, you are Just like that $5 bar, you're taking it and you're twisting it and you're heating it up and you're beating it and you're heating it up some more and twisting it some more and you're making us, through those things, more like your son. Lord, do what you deem necessary to make us more like Jesus. Have your way. Have your way in each individual in this room. Have your way in this, your church. In Jesus' name, amen.